Section 9 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Sunday, 5th September. I walked to the parish church of Slate, which is a very poor one. There are no church bells in the island. I was told there were once some. What has become of them I could not learn. The minister not being at home, there was no service. I went into the church and saw the monument of Sir James MacDonald, which was elegantly executed at Rome, and has the following inscription written by his friend George Lord Littleton. To the memory of Sir James MacDonald, baronet, who in the flower of youth had attained to so eminent a degree of knowledge in mathematics, philosophy, languages, and in every other branch of useful and polite learning, as few have acquired in a long life wholly devoted to study. Yet to this erudition he joined what can rarely be found with it, great talents for business, great propriety of behaviour, great politeness of manners. His eloquence was sweet, correct and flowing, his memory vast and exact, his judgment strong and acute, all which endowments, united with the most amiable temper and every private virtue, procured him not only in his own country, but also from foreign nations, the highest marks of esteem. In the year of our Lord, 1766, the twenty-fifth of his life, after a long and extremely painful illness, which he supported with admirable patience and fortitude, he died at Rome where, notwithstanding the difference of religion, such extraordinary honours were paid to his memory as had never graced that of any other British subject since the death of Sir Philip Sidney. The fame he left behind him is the best consolation to his afflicted family and to his countrymen in this isle, for whose benefit he had planned many useful improvements, which his fruitful genius suggested and his active spirit promoted under the sober direction of a clear and enlightened understanding. Reader, bewail our loss, and that of all Britain, in testimony of her love, and as the best return she can make to her departed son, for the constant tenderness and affection which even to his last moments he showed for her, his much-afflicted mother, the Lady Margaret MacDonald, daughter to the Earl of Eglintoon, erected this monument, A.D., 1768. Dr. Johnson said the inscription should have been in Latin, as everything intended to be universal and permanent should be. This being a beautiful day, my spirits were cheered by the mere effect of climate. I had felt a return of spleen during my stay at Armadale, and had it not been that I had Dr. Johnson to contemplate, I should have sunk into dejection, but his firmness supported me. I looked at him, as a man whose head is turning giddy at sea looks at a rock or any fixed object. I wondered at his tranquillity. He said, Sir, when a man retires into an island, he is to turn his thoughts entirely to another world. He has done with this. Boswell, it appears to me, sir, to be very difficult to unite a due attention to this world and that which is to come, for if we engage eagerly in the affairs of life, we are apt to be totally forgetful of a future state, 
and on the other hand a steady contemplation of the awful concerns of eternity renders all objects here so insignificant as to make us indifferent and negligent about them. Johnson. Sir, Dr. Cheney has laid down a rule to himself on this subject, which should be imprinted on every mind. To neglect nothing to secure my eternal peace, more than if I had been certified I should die within the day, nor to mind anything that my secular obligations and duties demanded of me, less than if I had been insured to live fifty years more. I must here observe that though Dr. Johnson appeared now to be philosophically calm, yet his genius did not shine forth as in companies where I have listened to him with admiration. The vigour of his mind was, however, sufficiently manifested by his discovering no symptoms of feeble relaxation in the dull, weary, flat and unprofitable state in which we now were placed. I am inclined to think that it was on this day he composed the following ode upon the Isle of Skye, which a few days afterwards he showed me at Rasay. Oda. Ponti profundis clausa recessibus, strepens procellis rupibus obsita, quam grata defesso virentem, scia sinum ebulosa pandis. His cura credo sedibus exulat, hit blanda certe pax habitat locis, non ira non miror quitis insidias mediator horis, at non cavata rupe latisseri, menti nec egre montibus avis, prodest vagari nec frementes, e scopulo numerari fluctus. Humana virtus non sibi sufficit, dato nec equum qui qui animum sibi, perari possi, ut stoicorum secta crepet nimus alta fallax, ex aestu antis pectoris impetum, rex sume solus tu regis arbiter, mentisqui te tolente sorgunt, te residunt moderante fluctus. After supper, Dr. Johnson told us that Isaac Hawkins Brown drank freely for thirty years, and that he wrote his poem De Animi Immortalitate in some of the last of these years. I listened to this with the eagerness of one who, conscious of being himself fond of wine, is glad to hear that a man of so much genius and good thinking as Brown had the same propensity. Monday, 6th September we set out, accompanied by Mr. Donald MacLeod, late of Canner, as our guide. We rode for some time along the district of Slate, near the shore. The houses in general are made of turf, covered with grass. The country seemed well peopled. We came into the district of Strath and passed along a wild Moorish tract of land till we arrived at the shore. There we found good verdure and some curious wind-rocks or collections of stones like the ruins of the foundations of old buildings. We saw also three cairns of considerable size. About a mile beyond Broadfoot is Corishatashin, a farmer Sir Alexander MacDonald's, possessed by Mr. MacKinnon, who received us with a hearty welcome, as did his wife, who was, what we call in Scotland, a ladylike woman. Mr. Pennant, in the course of his tour to the Hebrides, passed two nights at this gentleman's house. On its being mentioned that at present had here been made to him of a curious specimen of Highland antiquity, 
Dr. Johnson said, Sir, it was more than he deserved. The dog is a wig. We here enjoyed the comfort of a table plentifully furnished, the satisfaction of which was heightened by a numerous and cheerful company, and we for the first time had a specimen of the joyous social manners of the inhabitants of the highlands. They talked in their own ancient language with fluent vivacity, and sung many erst songs with such spirit, that though Dr. Johnson was treated with the greatest respect and attention, there were moments in which he seemed to be forgotten. For myself, though but a lowlander, having picked up a few words of the language, I presumed to mingle in their mirth, and joined in the choruses with as much glee as any of the company. Dr. Johnson, being fatigued with his journey, retired early to his chamber, where he composed the following ode addressed to Mrs. Thrale. Oda Permeo terras ubi nuda rupes, saxias miscet nebulis ruinas, torvar ubi rident steriles coloni rura labores. Pervagor gentes hominum ferorum, vita ubi nulla decorata cultu squalet informis turgurica fumis fida latesit. Inter erroris salebros are longi, inter ignote strepitus loquelli, quot modis mecum quidacat requiro, thralia dulcis. Seu viri curas pia nupta mulcet, soe fovet mater sobolum benina, sive cum libris novitate pasquet sedula mentem. Sit memor nostri fideque merces, stet fides constans meritoque blandum, thralie discant resonari nomen litera sciae. Scriptum in Scia, September the sixth, seventeen seventy three. Tuesday, seventh of September. Dr. Johnson was much pleased with his entertainment here. There were many good books in the house, Hector Bethius in Latin, Cave's Lives of the Fathers, Baker's Chronicle, Jeremy Collier's Church History, Dr. Johnson's Small Dictionary, Crawford's Orifices of State, and several more. A mezzo-into of Mrs. Brooks, the actress, by some strange chance in Sky, and also a print of MacDonald of Clanrenald with a Latin inscription about the cruelties after the Battle of Culloden, which will never be forgotten. It was a very wet, stormy day. We were therefore obliged to remain here, it being impossible to cross the sea to Razi. I employed a part of the forenoon in writing this journal. The rest of it was somewhat dreary, from the gloominess of the weather and the uncertain state which we were in, as we could not tell but it might clear up every hour. Nothing is more painful to the mind than a state of suspense, especially when it depends on the weather, concerning which there can be so little calculation. As Dr. Johnson said of our weariness on the Monday at Aberdeen, Sensation is sensation. Corichetachin, which was last night a hospitable house, was in my mind changed today into a prison. After dinner I read some of Dr. Macpherson's dissertations on the ancient Caledonians. I was disgusted by the unsatisfactory conjectures as to antiquity before the days of record. I was happy when tea came. 
Such, I take it, is the state of those who live in the country. Meals are wished for from the cravings of vacuity of mind as well as from the desire of eating. I was hurt to find even such a temporary feebleness, and that I was so far from being that robust wise man who is sufficient for his own happiness. I felt a kind of lethargy of indolence. I did not exert myself to get Dr. Johnson to talk that I might not have the labour of writing down his conversation. He inquired here if there were any remains of the second sight. Mr. Macpherson, Minister of Slate, said he was resolved not to believe it, because it was founded on no principle. Johnson, there are many things, then, which we are sure are true, that you will not believe. What principle is there, why a lodestone attracts iron, why an egg produces a chicken by heat, why a tree grows upwards, when the natural tendency of all things is downwards? Sir, it depends upon the degree of evidence that you have. Young Mr. McKinnon mentioned one Mackenzie, who is still alive, who had often fainted in his presence, and when he recovered mentioned visions which had been presented to him. He told Mr. McKinnon that at such a place he should meet a funeral, and that such and such people would be the bearers, naming four, and three weeks afterwards he saw what Mackenzie had predicted, the naming the very spot in a country where a funeral comes a long way, and the very people as bearers, when there are so many out of whom a choice may be made, seems extraordinary. We should have sent for Mackenzie, had we not been informed that he could speak no English. Besides, the facts were not related with sufficient accuracy. Mrs. McKinnon, who is a daughter of old Kingsburg, told us that her father was one day riding in Skye, and some women, who were at work in a field on the side of the road, said to him they had heard two tysks, that is, two voices of persons about to die, and what was remarkable, one of them was an English tysk, which they never heard before. When he returned, he at that very place met two funerals, and one of them was that of a woman who had come from the mainland and could speak only English. This, she remarked, made a great impression upon her father. How all the people here were lodged, I know not. It was partly done by separating man and wife, and putting a number of men in one room, and of women in another. Wednesday, 8th September when I waked, the rain was much heavier than yesterday, but the wind had abated. By breakfast the day was better, and in a little while it was calm and clear. I felt my spirits much elated. The propriety of the expression, the sunshine of the breast, now struck me with peculiar force, for the brilliant rays penetrated into my very soul. We were all in a better humour than before. Mrs. McKinnon, with unaffected hospitality and politeness, expressed her happiness in having such company in her house, and appeared to understand and relish Dr. Johnson's conversation, as indeed all the company seemed to do. When I knew she was old Kingsburg's daughter, I did not wonder at the good appearance which she made. She talked as if her husband and family would emigrate, rather than be oppressed by their landlord, and said, how agreeable would it be if these gentlemen should come in upon us when we are in America. Somebody observed that Sir Alexander MacDonald was always frightened at sea. Johnson, 
He is frightened at sea, and his tenants are frightened when he comes to land. We resolved to set out directly after breakfast. We had about two miles to ride to the seaside, and there we expected to get one of the boats belonging to the fleet of Bounty Herring Buses then on the coast, or at least a good country fishing boat. But while we were preparing to set out, there arrived a man with the following card from the Reverend Mr. Donald McQueen. Mr. McQueen's compliments to Mr. Boswell, and begs leave to acquaint him that fearing the want of a proper boat, as much as the rain of yesterday, might have caused a stop, he is now at Skinwarden with McKillicham's carriage to convey him and Dr. Johnson to Rasey, where they will meet with a most hearty welcome, and where MacLeod, being on a visit, now attends their motions. Wednesday afternoon. This card was most agreeable. It was a prologue to that hospitable and truly polite reception which we found at Rasey. In a little while arrived Mr. Donald McQueen himself, a decent minister, an elderly man with his own black hair, courteous and rather slow of speech, but candid, sensible and well-informed, nay, learned. Along with him came, as our pilot, a gentleman whom I had great desire to see, Mr. Malcolm MacLeod, one of the Rasey family, celebrated in the year 1745-6. to six. He was now sixty-two years of age, hale and well-proportioned, with a manly countenance, tanned by the weather, yet having a ruddiness in his cheeks, over a great part of which his rough beard extended. His eye was quick and lively, yet his look was not fierce, but he appeared at once firm and good-humoured. He wore a pair of brogues tartan hose which came up only near to his knees and left them bare, a purple camblet kilt, a black waistcoat, a short green cloth coat bound with gold cord, a yellowish bushy wig, a large blue bonnet with a gold thread button. I never saw a figure that gave a more perfect representation of a highland gentleman. I wished much to have a picture of him just as he was. I found him frank and polite in the true sense of the word. The good family at Corricatachin said they hoped to see us on our return. We rode down to the shore, but Malcolm walked with graceful agility. We got into Raz's carriage, which was a good strong open boat made in Norway. The wind had now risen pretty high and was against us, but we had four stout rowers, particularly a MacLeod, a robust black-haired fellow, half-naked and bare-headed, something between a wild Indian and an English tar. Dr. Johnson sat high in the stern, like a magnificent triton. Malcolm sung an earth song, the chorus of which was Haitian foam foam cree, with words of his own. The tune resembled o'er the moor among the heather. The boatman and Mr. McQueen chorused, and all went well. At length Malcolm himself took an oar and rowed vigorously. We sailed along the coast of Sculper, a rugged island about four miles in length. Dr. Johnson proposed that he and I should buy it, and found a good school and an Episcopal church, Malcolm said he would come to it, and have a printing press, where he would print all the nurse that could be found. Here I was strongly struck with our long-projected scheme of visiting the Hebrides being realised. I called to him, We are contending with seas, which I think were the words of one of his letters to me. Not much, said he, 
and though the wind made the sea lash considerably upon us, he was not discomposed. After we were out of the shelter of Sculper, and in the sound between it and Razi, which extended about a league, the wind made the sea very rough. I did not like it. Johnson, this now is the Atlantic. If I should tell at a tea-table in London that I have crossed the Atlantic in an open boat, how they'd shudder, and what a fool they'd think me to expose myself to such danger. He then repeated Horace's ode, Otium divos rogat in patenti princess aegil. In the confusion and hurry of this boisterous sail, Dr. Johnson's spurs, of which Joseph had charge, were carried overboard into the sea and lost. This was the first misfortune that had befallen us. Dr. Johnson was a little angry at first, observing that there was something wild in letting a pair of spurs be carried into the sea out of a boat. But then he remarked that, as Jane's the naturalist has said upon losing his pocket-book, it was rather an inconvenience than a loss. He told us, he now recollected, that he dreamt the night before that he put his staff into a river and chanced to let it go, and it was carried down the stream and lost. "'So now you see,' said he, "'that I have lost my spurs, and this story is better than many of those which we have concerning second sight and dreams.' Mr. McQueen said he did not believe the second sight, that he never met with any well-attested instances, and if he should, he should impute them to chance, because all who pretend to that quality often fail in their predictions, though they take a great scope, and sometimes interpret literally, sometimes figuratively, so as to suit the events. He told us that since he came to be minister of the parish where he now is, the belief of witchcraft or charms was very common, insomuch that he had many prosecutions before his session, the parochial ecclesiastical court against women for having by these means carried off the milk from people's cows he disregarded them and there is not now the least vestige of that superstition he preached against it and in order to give a strong proof to the people that there was nothing in it he said from the pulpit that every woman in the parish was welcome to take the milk from his cows provided she did not touch them Dr. Johnson asked him as to Fingal. He said he could repeat some passages in the original that he had heard his grandfather had a copy of it, but that he could not affirm that Ossian composed all that poem as it is now published. This came pretty much to what Dr. Johnson had maintained, though he goes farther and contends that it is no better than such an epic poem as he could make from the song of Robin Hood, that is to say, that except a few passages there is nothing truly ancient but the names and some vague traditions. Mr. McQueen alleged that Homer was made up of detached fragments. Dr. Johnson denied this, observing that it had been one work originally and that you could not put a book of the Iliad out of its place, and he believed the same might be said of the Odyssey. The approach to Razi was very pleasing. We saw before us a beautiful bay, well defended by a rocky coast, a good family mansion, a fine verdure about it with a considerable number of trees, and beyond it hills and mountains in gradation of wildness. Our boatmen sung with great spirit. Dr. Johnson observed that naval music was very ancient. 
as we came near the shore the singing of our rowers was succeeded by that of reapers who were busy at work and who seemed to shout as much as to sing while they worked with abounding activity just as we landed i observed a cross or rather the ruins of one upon a rock which had to me a pleasing vestige of religion i perceived a large company coming out from the house we met them as we walked up there was Razi himself his brother dr macleod his nephew the laird of mackinnon the laird of macleod colonel macleod of talisker an officer in the dutch service a very genteel man and a faithful branch of the family mr macleod of moor ravenside best known by the name of sandy macleod who was long in exile on account of the part which he took in seventeen forty five and several other persons we were welcomed upon the green and conducted into the house where we were introduced to lady razi who was surrounded by a numerous family consisting of three sons and ten daughters the laird of razi is a sensible polite and most hospitable gentleman i was told that his island of razi and that of rona from which the eldest son of the family has his title and a considerable extent of land which he has in skye do not altogether yield him a very large revenue and yet he lives in great splendour and so far is he from distressing his people that in the present rage for emigration not a man has left his estate it was past six o'clock when we arrived some excellent brandy was served round immediately according to the custom of the highlands where a dram is generally taken every day they call it a sculch on a sideboard was placed for us who had come off the sea a substantial dinner and a variety of wines then we had coffee and tea i observed in the room several elegantly bound books and other marks of improved life soon afterwards a fiddler appeared and a little ball began razi himself danced with as much spirit as any man and malcolm bounded like a roe sandy macleod who has at times an excessive flow of spirits and had it now was in his days of absconding known by the name of macruslick which it seems was the designation of a kind of wild man in the highlands something between proteus and don quixote and so he was called here he made much jovial noise dr johnson was so delighted with this scene that he said i know not how we shall get away it entertained me to observe him sitting by while we danced sometimes in deep meditation sometimes smiling complacently sometimes looking upon hook's roman history and sometimes talking a little amidst the noise of the ball to mr donald mcqueen who anxiously gathered knowledge from him he was pleased with mcqueen and said to me this is a critical man sir there must be great vigour of mind to make him cultivate learning so much in the isle of skye where he might do without it it is wonderful how many of the new publications he has there must be a snatch of every opportunity mr mcqueen told me that his brother who is the fourth generation of the family following each other as ministers of the parish of snizzet and he joined together and bought from time to time such books as had reputation soon after we came in a black cock and grey hen which had been shot was shown with their feathers on to dr johnson who had never seen that species of bird before we had a company of thirty at supper 
and all was good humour and gaiety without intemperance. End of section 9